Amen. Good morning, New Life. It's good to see you today. <laughs> um, you know, one of the things I love about these Psalms of Ascent is that there are so many prolific statements that are just so memorable. I, Chris's message last week was so good, but I just love that. I will lift up my eyes into the hills from whence cometh my help. Mm. That's one of the reasons I love living in the mountains. We can lift up our eyes every day and look to the hills. I believe that uh, you can die and go to heaven from anywhere, but if you go from western North Carolina, you won't notice the difference quite so much. Amen? Now, at first glance, it may be <clears throat> that, that we would think that the pursuit of joy and peace and security could be a self-serving, selfish pursuit. But that does not reflect the heart of God. In fact, God has instilled the desire for joy and peace and security into every one of our hearts. That's what everyone's looking for. The question is, where are they going to find it? Where are they going to go to to try to find that joy and peace and security? And not only has God placed that desire into our hearts, but he fulfills that desire. The psalmist says, delight yourself in the Lord and he'll give you the desires of your heart. He, he's commanding us to be glad. <clears throat> and we see that the psalmist also says, in, in your presence is fullness of joy and at your right hand are pleasures evermore. The desire for joy and peace and security is a good desire. It's the places that we go to find these things that can reveal what's really in our hearts as to whether the way we try to find it is good or bad. John 15, 11, Jesus says, These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Now the joy that we experience really has little to do with the circumstances of our lives, but everything to do with how we pursue it in the presence of Christ. In fact, have you ever known anyone who has had absolutely horrible life circumstances, and yet in the midst of that you see joy, their hearts flooded with joy? I know two people like that. I'm one of them. I remember the time when uh, my back was so bad I, I couldn't even sleep all night long and I just screamed in between each breath, help me Jesus. And yet in the midst of that, my heart was flooded with joy. My son Austin is another one. He was out rock climbing when he was young and he was bitten by a tick and got Lyme disease. And there was a two-year period where all he could do was lie in a dark room all day, every day, his eyes were blinking constantly. He couldn't handle any stimulation of light or sound, and he just had to be quiet. And during that time, his body was just racked with pain to the point that there were days that he even despaired of life. He said, I, I didn't even want to continue to live like this. And yet, in the midst of that, he began listening to podcasts and to the Bible with a very low volume 
And in the midst of all of that, God just flooded his heart with joy to the point that he would just laugh out loud even though he couldn't even hardly move. God has miraculously healed him through a three-phase process of treatments that he's been through to the point that now when he's not teaching music lessons, he goes out and works heavy construction just to build up his strength and his energy. He's doing great. But joy is not dependent upon circumstances. <clears throat> now, as we continue our study of the Psalms of Ascent, we're going to see today that the results of taking this pilgrimage up to Jerusalem into the Jerusalem, into the city, and then into the tabernacle, and through the tabernacle was an experience for the children of Israel that brought them a very deep sense of joy and peace and security. But the truths that gave them joy and peace and security are even more so fulfilled today for us and can produce the same thing in our hearts and lives. Psalm 122 is one of the four songs of ascent that is specifically attributed to David. He wrote it both for what Jerusalem was in his day and time and for what Jerusalem would become under his son Solomon and their successors. Let's start out with verse 1 of Psalm 122. I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Now, during David's reign over Israel, the people of Israel would, would come up to the city of Jerusalem from all sides, because it was on a hill, to celebrate three different feasts, spring, summer, and fall. And on the road up to Jerusalem, they would enjoy each other, and they would sing songs as they anticipated coming into the holy city. David was writing about the pilgrimage up to Jerusalem, into Jerusalem, and then to the tabernacle, which was what existed during his day. And it was regarded as the house of the Lord. And then he was also writing in anticipation of the pilgrims who would later come to the temple, which would be built by his son Solomon. So what we see in verse 1 is the first truth here and that is that joy comes from the family of God. Being a part of the family of God is a deep source of joy for us. Coming to God's house and seeing the people of Israel come to Jerusalem filled up David's heart with joy. Now for us today the church gathering together for corporate worship is coming to the house of God. The house of God is not a building. It's a family. Many people don't know the gladness that David sang of. It's because they, they don't go to the house of the Lord at all or they go with the wrong attitude and it isn't a glad thing for them. <clears throat> but it's good and important for us to gather together with the family of God for fellowship, for a family reunion, for prayers, for worship, for the for this receiving of God's word. And our, our going to the house of God should be a glad thing for those not yet believers who are seeking the truth. And we hope that if 
If you're still kicking the tires of Christianity, that this will be a safe place for you to discover the gospel. But also for the believers who are one in Christ. It's a glad thing for us. So I want to ask you this morning, is going to the house of the Lord a glad thing for you, a source of joy for you? If going to the house of the Lord is not a glad thing, the problem may be in the heart of the one who comes or who doesn't come at all. Now, it can be easy for us to uh, set the church up as a place of a target of our criticism. I've I love to talk to people out in the community and so many times I ask them about their faith experience and they'll say something like, uh, oh, I'm very spiritual, but I'm not interested in organized religion. And I tell them, you ought to come to New Life. We have disorganized religion here. <laughs> but we need to remember that the church is the bride of Christ. Now to say you love Jesus but not love his church is like saying to a guy, a couple, I like that guy, but I can't stand his wife. If you have a problem with my wife, you have a problem with me. The early church father, Augustine, he said, he who would have God as his father must have the church as his mother. The greatest privilege we will ever have on the face of this earth is to be a member of God's forever family, the church. Nothing else even comes close. Now, I know about all the deficiencies of the church. been in the church all my life. Some of you have been hurt by the church. I have too. But we're a family. And sometimes family members disagree with each other, to say it lightly. Someone described the church like a pack of porcupines on a cold, frigid winter night. They're cold and they come together to get warm. But then they start prickling each other and they move out. But they get cold again and so they come back in and then they start prickling each other again. And so all night long, there's this strange, strange accordion-like experience that they have of coming in and out. Now, you've heard it said that if you find the perfect church, don't join it because you will ruin it. That quote is like pepper to make the Pharisee in us sneeze out the cynicism we might have. But make no mistake, God intends for his children to step into the family of God. We need to resist individualism. We need to resist independence. And we need to resist cynicism. I was speaking at a Bible conference a number of years ago at First Baptist Church, Thomasville, North Carolina. And after the service, the pastor and I went out to dinner and we went to Denny's and we were the only ones in the restaurant. And the waitress was really friendly, and since we were the only ones there, she was hanging around, we were talking. So I finally said, you know, do you have a church home? If you don't, I'd love to invite you to First Baptist Thomasville. And um, she said, oh, well, I love to worship God in nature, but I'm not interested. I don't go to church on Sunday. And I said, well, did you know um, it's a wonderful thing to worship God in nature. We ought to be able to worship God in nature because he created it. But did you know that the God that you're worshiping in nature has commanded you to go to church? She said, no, I didn't know that. And I shared with her the familiar verse of Hebrews 10, 24. Let us consider how we might stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking 
the assembling of ourselves together as is the habit of some. In other words, some have gotten out of the habit of being a part of the family of God in church, but exhorting one another and so much more as you see the day approaching. Now, almost everything we do in the Christian life, we do better together. There's one verse that haunts me when I think of my friends and relatives who claim to be Christian but who have stopped coming to church. 1 John 3.14 He says, We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brothers. And that includes the sisters. Whoever does not love abides in death. So what he's saying here is that if you don't love the family of faith, you're abiding in death. Now let me just ask you this. What would be the irreducible minimum that any of us would need to do in order to demonstrate that we love our brothers and sisters in Christ? You'd think that we'd at least show up every now and then. We'd want to be with them. How can you say you love someone if you never want to be with them? Now, we can come up with all kinds of reasons to not gather with our family of faith to worship together. Uh, I want to give you 12 reasons why people don't attend sporting events any, any longer. Number one, the coach never came to visit me. Every time I went, they asked for money. The people sitting in my row didn't seem very friendly. The seats were very hard. The referees made a decision I didn't agree with. I was sitting with a row full of hypocrites. Some games went into overtime and I was late getting home. The band played some songs I'd never heard before. The games are scheduled on my only day to sleep in and run errands. My parents took me to too many games when I was growing up. Since I read a book on sports, I feel that I know more than the coaches do anyway. And lastly, I don't want to take my children because I want them to choose for themselves which sport they like the best. Now, we know the church isn't perfect because people aren't perfect. It's filled full of people. Even Christians, we get in the flesh. But I want you to repeat this after me, if you will. Trust me, just repeat this after me. The church is the perfect place for imperfect people to worship the perfect Savior. Amen. The church is God's plan A for building his kingdom. Now let's look at verse 2. Our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem built as a city that is bound firmly together to which the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, as was decreed for Israel to give thanks to the name of the Lord. Now this is David's description of the joyful statement of the pilgrim who has finally arrived to Jerusalem. They made it to the destination. And it's a song of first impression of walking through the gates of the city and looking around. And then what that does for each person individually as they move on in and through the experience of the tabernacle. So not only does joy come from the family of God, but we also see, secondly, that joy comes from our personal walk with God. That's really the, uh, the source of it. The apostle Paul proclaimed that our bodies are the temple of God now. It's a dwelling place of God, and joy comes from deep within as we access the presence of God through his indwelling spirit. 
Now, the process of walking through the gate of the city and through the gate of the tabernacle and all the way through to the holy place is a deeply personal experience of joy as these people did that. And it's a joy it's for us as we see Christ and our personal experience with him every step of the way because if you really look at the tabernacle, you're going to see that Jesus is the fulfillment of every element of furnishing in the tabernacle. Let's look at that tabernacle for a minute. The tabernacle is a very beautiful type or picture of so many truths that find their fulfillment in the presence of Christ. Let's just walk, let's just take the same walk that the pilgrims would all walk. We start out walking through the gate. The gate is the door into the presence of God, the doorway. Now we know that for us, this gate is the person of Christ himself. If you miss coming to Jesus, you'll miss out on being able to have a relationship with the Father. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man can come to the Father but through me. Jesus, this, this gate shows that he's the door. Now, as soon as you walk through the door and you look, you see colors. You see the colors on the walls. The colors of blue, of purple, of scarlet, and of white. All of those colors represent the symbolism of who Christ is for us. Blue, it symbolizes his divinity. The purple symbolizes his kingship over us. The scarlet symbolizes his sacrificial blood for us. And the white linen symbolizes the beauty of his holiness and his purity. But then we move on inside the gate to the first furnishing, which is the brass altar. Just inside the gate, this is the place where the lambs and the other animals were sacrificed for the sins of the people as they came. Now, the day that John the Baptist saw Jesus, he fell on his face and he said something interesting. He said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Why would a man call another man a lamb? But he knew that Jesus was the last lamb. He was the last sacrificial lamb who would be given to take away all of the sins of the world and there would be no more need for a sacrifice on the brass altar because he was the last one. So we see the beauty of this as Jesus offered himself up. Christ sprinkled his own blood for our forgiveness on the mercy seat of God which is in heaven. And then there's just one single item that stood between the brass altar and the holy place and that was the brass laver. The brass laver's purpose was for personal cleansing of the priests as they approached the holy place to minister. Now, they had to be cleansed for communion, although they had a bath of consecration at the beginning of their ministry, but there was a continuous washing that the laver has as its counterpart with us also. This is the difference for us between our relationship with God and fellowship with God. When we come to Jesus and we transfer our trust from what Christ did for us, from what we've done to what Christ did for us, we're cleansed. We're forgiven for the penalty of all of our sin, past, present, and future. 
And that's a wonderful thing. But then there's not only a need for forgiveness from the penalty of sin, but we need to overcome the power of sin because we get in the flesh. We're like Paul in Romans 7. I do the things I don't want to do. I don't do the things I should do. And we can easily get in the flesh. We can be real stinkers. So cheer up. You're worse than you think. But the beautiful thing is that we can always come back to this brass laver for cleansing. And even though our relationship with God is established, I'm his son, you're his daughter, nothing will ever change that, but our fellowship with God can be blocked. And so we need to be restored in our fellowship. That's why 1 John 1, 9 says, when we confess our sins, he's just and faithful to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Not that we need to be forgiven for the penalty of sin, but we need to be restored in our fellowship with God. We come back to the, to the blood over and over again, that, that, that labor for cleansing. It's a beautiful picture. And then we come to the tent of the tabernacle. It's a two-room place of ministry. The first room is called the holy place, and there we find three items. First, there is a seven-branched lampstand called the menorah. It's the only light in there because there are no windows in that tent. And it lights up that room. And for us, we see that Jesus said, I am the light of the world. He shows us the way, the truth, the life. The Holy Spirit constantly leads us into the light of truth. Now, in this day and age in which we live, in which existentialism and relativism seems to reign in this secular world, the quest for truth seems to be somewhat elusive. Is it really possible to discover absolute truth? And my answer to that is absolutely yes. Christ is the light. He reveals truth to us because he is the truth. But then we see also a table of showbread in that holy place. The table of showbread uh, held 12 loaves of bread representing the 12 tribes of Israel. But the table of bread speaks of us, our feasting on Jesus as the bread of life. Jesus said in John 6, 35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Then next there is an altar of incense in that holy place. It pictures the height of our spiritual life where we do nothing but just continue to surrender ourselves up to God as a sweet-smelling savor to Him. And, and the Bible says that the prayers and the intercession of the saints is a sweet-smelling incense rising to the throne of God. Now imagine this. We have our intercession. We have Jesus praying for us in heaven and we have the Holy Spirit interceding for us even when we don't know how to pray the way we ought to. A beautiful thing that fills up the heart of God. And then you go behind that holy place into the second room, the Holy of Holies. Now there was a thick curtain or a veil that separated the holy place from the Holy of Holies. There was a uh, uh, a, a place back there where uh, the, the high priest only went once a year on the day of atonement to, to, to sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat above the Ark of the Covenant. And only the high priest could go behind that veil. So what would they do? Uh, they, found, they knew that if he presented 
a sacrifice that was not acceptable, he would be struck dead. But he was the only one who could go in there. So they would tie a rope to his ankles so that when he was in there, if he was struck dead, since they couldn't go in there, they could pull him out. But guess what happened? When Jesus died on the cross for our sins, the Gospels record that literally in the temple, the veil was literally torn from top to bottom, opening up the way into the direct presence of God because for us today, we are part of the priesthood of all believers and we have direct access right into the presence of God. Isn't that a beautiful thing? We can, we're invited to come boldly to the throne of grace. What a beautiful picture for us to experience that. And for us to experience Christ as the door, for us to experience the forgiveness of sin through his sacrifice, for us to be continually cleansed through confession and repentance and trust in him, restored in our fellowship with him, for us to feast from the bread of life, Jesus, for us to be illuminated in our lives and re reveal truth to us, for us to be able to give up uh, 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 intercession that is like a sweet incense to God and he loves and he appreciates, he loves that. Oh, what a blessing that is. And so for that, for us to experience that, friends, that is the deepest source of joy anyone could experience. No matter where you look, in another place or what you look to, you will never find a source of joy that is deeper than this. Let's look at verse 6. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they be secure who love you. Peace be within your walls and security within your towers. For my brothers and companions' sake, I will say peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek you're good. So David continues by giving a prayer for Jerusalem. I love the way C.H. Spurgeon describes this. He says, The prayer included a blessing for those who love the city and a direct request for peace and prosperity for the city. The Hebrew word means to be secure, tranquil, at rest, spoken especially of one who enjoys quiet prosperity. The essential idea is that of quietness or rest. And the meaning here is that those who love God will have peace. So not only does joy come from the family of God, and not only does joy come from our personal walk with God, but what we see lastly is that peace comes from our security in Christ. Three times in these short verses we see the word peace. Twice in these verses, we see the word security. So David is exhorting the pilgrims to come to that holy city to pray for the peace of the city. Actually, the Jerusalem's name itself marks it as a city of peace. But in reality, the city of Jerusalem has known much war, much conflict, and it continues even to this day. So it's good for us to pray often for the peace of Jerusalem. Now I had the opportunity to go to the Holy Land several years ago. And we went to the Jerusalem towards the end of our journey there. 
And I was really excited and really anticipating being able to go to Jerusalem. But I have to be honest with you. I, I felt tension in that city. It was very busy. People everywhere, frowns on their faces, people jostling for position. And there was just a sense over that city that was not a sense of peace for me. I started out by noticing these young, young Orthodox Jewish men who were dressed in long black robes, hair in front of their ears, phylacteries on their heads, hat, black hats on, walking with their scriptures open, their wife behind them, and however many children they had trailing behind her. These were young men who are supported by the government of Israel to do nothing but study the law. And the citizens of Israel deeply resent them because they are supported by their tax dollars. But there's political pressure that makes that happen. And the more children they have, the more money they get. So that was not a fun experience watching that and people's reaction to them. Then we went to the Holy Church of the Sepulcher, which is supposed to be the place where the cross was, where Jesus died. As we wound our way up through that building, we noticed it was a place of tension. The Jews, the Catholics, the Eastern Orthodox Church all claim ownership to parts of that building. And there's constant conflict over that. In fact, in one place, there's a ladder that has been standing there since the late 1700s. No one is allowed to touch it because no one can agree who owns it. And then you wind up towards that place where the cross was supposed to be and you have to crawl under a table to touch that spot and then there's all of this Eastern Orthodox incense and it just, it did not give me a good vibe at all. And then you've got the Dome of the Rock, which is the holy place for the Muslims. That complicates it even more. So yes, we need to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. But the beautiful thing for us today is that the ultimate peace and security comes from our identity in Christ for those who are in Christ. Now you can listen to every love song in the world. You can read every poem in the world. You can listen to every speech that talks about the deepest longings of the soul. But all of us can agree that nothing will give us deep inner satisfaction like joy, peace, and security. We all want that. So why can we possibly as Christians have peace and security when we live in a world that is filled with conflict and upheaval and division? Has our nation ever been as divided as it is now? And the reason that I can is because my life is not defined by the evening news. It does not matter what news source you listen to I do not believe God ever intended for us to process so much bad news at one time on any given day. If it bleeds, it leads. And then you don't know who you can trust, who's telling the truth and who isn't. I believe NASA 
should invent a space probe to go into the TV channels to see if there's any form of intelligent life there. No matter what happens out there, though, my peace and security does not come from what's going on in Washington. It doesn't come from my investment account or for, from a title or for achievement. How many of you watched the coronation of King Charles yesterday? Yeah, about the same number that the first crowd did. Oh, I watched it, all the regal regalia, the royal regalia. I watched it for all of two minutes. Such a deal. But think about this. Get this. King Charles is the king over part of a tiny little island out there in the Atlantic Ocean on one side and the North Sea on the other. My daddy, God, my Abba Father, is king of the universe. And I'm his son. And you're his daughter. And if I'm the son of a king, that makes me a prince. Never understood why, you know, the name Steve, Steve means crowned one. How in the world could I be a crowned one? I'm a prince. You're a princess. That's who you are. And your daddy is the king of the whole universe. You're a member of a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a holy family. How much more security and peace could you get than that? What a beautiful, beautiful truth for us. And that's not just a positional truth. It's a real truth. You really are his son and his daughter. And that gives you significance. So no matter what your classmates think about you, no matter what your boss or anyone else says about you, you're secure in your position in Christ. And at any time, you can walk into that royal room and you can crawl go up to the throne of the king you can crawl up into the king's lap you can lay your head on his chest you can listen to his heartbeat and you can feel him wrap his loving arms around you it's like a little boy who was sitting in his mother's lap and he laid his head on her chest and he was listening to her heartbeat she said what do you hear in there and he said I think it's Jesus and he's making coffee what a secure thing for us to be able to crawl into our Heavenly Father's lap. And we can know that no matter how bad it gets, heaven is your home. We're just traveling through. It's a temporary place for us. We're in training for reigning with Christ for all of eternity. And someday we're going to be with God in heaven and we're going to see Jesus face to face in all of his glory. And we'll be with our loved ones forever. If that truth doesn't give you peace and security, then there's nothing else that can and there's nothing else that I can offer you. So let me invite you to the true source of joy and peace and security. You'll find it as you look to Christ in you as the hope of glory. You'll find it as you continue to join in with the family of God, coming to the house of God week after week, to enjoy the experience of being together with the body of Christ. And maybe you haven't accepted Christ yet. Are you ready to receive him today? He's knocking at the door of your heart. He's ready for you. Are you ready for him? I'm going to invite you to pray with me in a moment. And for those of you who are in Christ, do you realize that there's two kinds of hypocrites? There's people who aren't saved and they act like it. 
but they come to church and act like a Christian, but they're not saved, and they go out and live like the devil all week long. But then there's another kind of hypocrite, and that is a person who is saved, but they're not cashing in on who they are in Christ. They're not living like a true Christian because they haven't discovered their identity in him. He's yours today. Receive it. Walk in it. Let's pray. If you're ready to receive Christ right now, you just pray with me. Dear Jesus, I've been on this search for significance and it's left me so empty because there's always someone who's bigger, smarter, stronger, better looking, more popular, more money. And it's left me empty. Nothing that I've done has fulfilled that emptiness in me, but I want to come to you right now. I want to receive you as the forgiver of my life, the leader of my life, my rescuer. Thank you for dying on the cross. I trust in your death and that sacrificial blood for the forgiveness of my sin. I repent of my sin. I want to follow you in the fellowship and service of your forever family, the church. I, I trust you to help me and to empower me as you come into my life and give me the strength to walk forward. For those of us, Lord, who are saved, I pray that you would just give us the faith to step into these great blessings that we've seen today in your word. I praise you for that in your name. Amen.